The millionaire publisher of the Daily Mirror, Robert Maxwell, has been reported missing from his motor yacht off the Canary Islands. Well, we've just heard from the Air Sea Rescue Centre at Madrid that a body has been found. When the news of Robert Maxwell's death reached London, the response was polarised. I remember feeling a, a real sense of disbelief, a slight sense of being deprived of a proper ending because he should have faced the music. It went into all the offices. Maxwell has gone missing. Anyway, everybody just started laughing. Good riddance. <laughs> I sat at the typewriter and I couldn't even move my fingers. And there were all these editorials that night saying, how terrible, what a loss, you know, what a wonderful man. The Daily Mirror headline the next day was the man who saved the mirror. Robert Maxwell's death sparked both outpourings of sorrow and laughter. Today, Maxwell's beginning, how a man rose from a shtetl in Central Europe to become the despised head of a global media empire. This is the story of an outsider so desperate to be accepted that he was willing to do whatever it took. I'm Tara Palmieri, and from something else, this is Power, the Maxwells. Episode three, Failing Upwards. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Roy Greenslade will never forget that phone call from Robert Maxwell. It was the morning after Christmas, 1989. The telephone went at something like seven in the morning and uh, I rolled over and a booming voice, a booming voice said, Mr. Greenslade, I have the honor of offering you the opportunity to come and see me. Roy was 42 years old. He'd been working in newspapers since he was a teenager and had risen to the position of a news editor at the prestigious Sunday Times, one of Rupert Murdoch's papers in London. So I turned up about three hours later in the lonely building where he sat in isolation up on the 10th floor. First thing that struck Roy was the extravagant decor. Marble columns, an enormous fireplace, lots of velvet. He sort of wanted it done up, I think, like a, a kind of brothel from the Byzantine Empire. So I sat back into this voluminous uh, kind of sofa where you kind of disappeared. And he said, now, Mr. Green said, you're wondering why you're here. Yes, I have the honor of offering you the position of editor of the Daily Mirror. Well, I fell even further backwards this time. There wasn't even an interview. Roy got the job and he couldn't believe it. The lure of being editor of the Daily Mirror, paper I'd grown up with as a kid, was just too much to resist. The Daily Mirror was one of the most influential newspapers in the country. It had been the best-selling paper in Britain for a considerable period uh, until the rise of the sun in the 1970s. 
Uh, it was still selling more than three million copies a day. It was uh, noted for its great writing, uh, for its investigative journalism, and for the power of its news desk. Roy couldn't say no. So there I was, daring to go off and work for Robert Maxwell. As Roy left Maxwell's penthouse that morning, he couldn't resist taking one last look at the decor. There were these sort of columns, and I, marble columns, I thought. Anyway, I put my hand on it, and suddenly I, it felt hollow, and I realized it was fake. And somehow that's a metaphor for Robert Maxwell. When you got close to him, when you delved into his past and indeed his present, you often found that there, there was a very different reality to the front that he put up. Roy wasn't in the job long before he realized who was really in charge. It was worse than he had imagined. Odd things would happen. You'd come back from lunch and find him sitting in your seat. I'm the editor today, Mr. Greenslade. Um, or he'd walk into your office with the Canadian Prime Minister or something weird, one of his visitors. What do you have to say to the Canadian Prime Minister? Well, not very much, actually, Mr. Maxwell. If he didn't get the reply he wanted, he would literally say to the person, you're sacked. And uh, I often found myself at weekends particularly, like to sack people at weekends when I wasn't there, I'd have to come in and then reinstate the person and um, explain to them, I'm terribly sorry, but, you know, that's the publisher for you. Roy worked for Maxwell for 15 months. He ended up leaving six months before Maxwell died. After Maxwell's death, Roy was commissioned to write a book about him. So Roy started researching Maxwell's mysterious past and his unbelievable rise to the top. The deeper he dug into Maxwell's life, the stranger it all seemed. I've looked closely at everything written about Maxwell. I listened to some of his stories at night, and we've only got his account, I think. Here's what we do know. Robert Maxwell was born in 1923 in contested territory in Czechoslovakia, an area that's now part of Ukraine. And he was raised as an Orthodox Jew. This is what he said about his upbringing on the BBC in 1987. I came from a very poor family indeed. My father was an unemployed farm laborer. We didn't have enough to eat. I've only had three years primary education. Robert Maxwell wasn't his name back then. His birth name was actually Abraham Hawk. And then there was the Czech name that his family also registered, Jan Ludwig. During World War II, when the Germans occupied Czechoslovakia, 15-year-old Jan Ludwig traveled to Budapest. He traveled alone or with a cousin. We don't really know. Either way, he left his parents behind, his grandfather, his brother and sisters. Within a few years, most of them died in the Holocaust. No one really should, in assessing Maxwell, ever forget the astonishing past, his young life, of seeing his family taken away, of suffering a lot of anti-Semitism, of making his way across Europe uh, alone, of really having to overcome the fact that he was a poor boy from a shuttle in the middle of Eastern Europe. From a young age, Maxwell had big ambitions and he was already thinking of a reinvention. When he was about 20 years old, he gave himself another new name. While smoking a pack of cigarettes, he noticed that they were called Du Maurier. He liked the sound of it and became Leslie Du Maurier. Later, he adopted the more British-sounding Leslie Jones. 
before settling on Ian Robert Maxwell. He said it sounded like a good Scottish name. This chapter in his life sounds unbelievable, but Roy believes it. I've spoken at length to his nephew way back, and uh, he could basically correlate what Maxwell had said. In the same BBC interview, Maxwell talks about being posted to Britain. He says he arrived in Liverpool in 1940 without a single penny or a word of English. Within about six to eight weeks, I spoke it as well as I do now. How did you learn in that time? I met a girl who was running at the back in the shop. <laughs> I don't believe it. <laughs> Absolutely true. And she taught you English? She taught me English. We know that Maxwell had a gift for languages. It's said that he spoke nine, but learning perfect English in six to eight weeks, that's nearly impossible. If you start from scratch and study full time, experts say it can take at least a year to become fluent. It's easy to let this one go, but this wouldn't be the last time Maxwell stretched the truth. You have to ask yourself, what did this white lie say about his enormous ego? His life in Britain was off to a strong start. In 1941, he applied to join the British Army and was promoted to corporal, then sergeant, then an officer, before finally becoming a captain. On the German-Dutch border, he led a terrifying assault against German forces, forcing them to retreat. He won the military cross for his courage in this battle. He would have been a young, strong, handsome man, willing to take risks, daring. Look, when your family's been wiped out or disappeared, as it was then, and there seems like nothing to live for, you are willing to go that extra mile, and he certainly did that. Shortly after the liberation, he met a woman in Paris named Elizabeth. She's the woman who would become his wife, Betty. She was a middle-class French woman, two years older than him. They married a year later in 1946. He was a wonderful monster to me in that way. Um, you know, life isn't so smooth. I, I had, uh, he, he bought an enormous uh, enrichment of my life. Maxwell continued to fight in Germany and his gift for languages landed him a job as the head of a military press office in Berlin. This would be a formative time for him. Because it was there that he cultivated and understood um, that German scientific works uh, uh, were, no lo- were available um, and that he could hoover them up while the German publishers and the German publishing industry and the German scientific community were in no fit state. Maxwell saw something that other people didn't. This was valuable, particularly in the United States, this material. So he literally plundered it. And that was the creation of his first major British-based publishing venture, Pergamon Press. Pergamon, the name of an ancient Greek kingdom, seemed fitting for Maxwell's first company. He set it up on his return to England and published scientific journals on insect biochemistry, optical medicine, and ocean engineering. Maxwell flew to Moscow to publish an English-Russian dictionary. He cornered nuclear scientists in Switzerland to buy their papers. It sounds a bit obscure now, but no one else was doing this back then. It was a genius idea, and Maxwell quickly made a fortune. 
Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. By 1955, Pergamon was an international company, and Maxwell was on his way to becoming a publishing magnet. He loved it, but he wasn't entirely fulfilled. Maxwell told his wife, Betty, that his dream was to become Prime Minister of Britain, he believed a career in politics could only boost his business empire. When he was 36, he ran to be a member of parliament for the left-wing Labour Party. People were surprised. Business leaders like Maxwell were more often associated with the right-wing Conservative Party. Maxwell said his impoverished childhood helped him form his socialist roots. He campaigned for a seat in the swing town of Buckingham in 1959 and lost. But when he ran again five years later, he won by a slim margin. Here was Maxwell, only just in his 40s, already a war hero, a millionaire business owner, and a British member of parliament. At home, he was a father to seven children, including Kevin and Ghislaine. On paper, it looked pretty impressive for someone who fled war-torn Central Europe with no English. But he wasn't exactly setting the House of Commons on fire. He was a pretty poor MP uh, and really didn't like it himself because he also found it was much more difficult to manipulate uh, serious, intelligent people. And not only were his politics under scrutiny, but more importantly, so was his business acumen. In 1969, Pergamon Press appeared to be in great shape. Its annual report said that it was making $4 million in profits. And Maxwell decided to expand into America and started looking for a potential partner. A technology company was interested, and they entered into talks. The discussions seemed to be going well. The American company spent millions buying Pergamon shares. But as they did their due diligence, they made a serious discovery. Maxwell's financial reports were a sham. He'd been massaging his company accounts. And the $4 million in profit? A total lie. The deal was dead. The figures didn't add up. Uh, and he was basically trying to sell a pup, as we call it, in which he tried to inflate the worth of his company. Inflate is something that he was good at in selling something when it was just an idea or selling to a banker. But when he actually tried to sell something physical like a company, suddenly it was realized that he had nothing and that 
he was living a lie. The British Department of Trade stepped in to investigate Pergamon after the disastrous failed partnership. It spent months going through his records and published a report about Maxwell's affairs in 1971. It concluded, Notwithstanding Mr. Maxwell's ability and energy, he is not, in our opinion, a person who can be relied on to exercise proper stewardship of a publicly owned company. Are you saying there's a witch hunt on against you? Well, I, I certainly would say that the city establishment have, uh, are running a witch hunt against me. If there's anything which they can criticize me on, they have no hesitation not only in criticizing me, but in doing so without putting the allegation to me and without giving me an opportunity to reply as they promised to do. Witch hunt sounds kind of strong, but Maxwell craved acceptance from the British establishment. So much so that with every failure he encountered, he just seemed to be more desperate, more determined and strong-willed. His political career was in free fall. He was accused of being a financial fraud. For most people, this probably would have been a definite end of the road as an entrepreneur. But in a way, it was just the beginning for Maxwell. He had an idea of how to turn it all around. He decided to buy a newspaper. He realized that you got more power by owning a newspaper. You got access to prime ministers, you got access to ministers, and that this could be invaluable in terms of advancing his own business interests. In October 1968, the News of the World, Britain's biggest Sunday tabloid, came up for sale. Maxwell offered to buy 25% of its shares. But at the last minute, the family who owned the paper made the surprising decision to go with a lower bidder, Rupert Murdoch. Murdoch, just like Maxwell, was an outsider to the British aristocracy. He was Australian, and the news of the world would mark the beginning of his own global media empire. At a noisy shareholder meeting, the owners rejected Maxwell on the basis of his financial reputation. Murdoch seemed like a safer proprietor. From that day, the two became bitter rivals. Five months later, still intent on owning a national newspaper, Maxwell offered $80,000, that's over a million today, to buy The Sun, a daily tabloid. But again, at the last minute, Murdoch swooped in and stole the paper from under Maxwell's nose. He was frustrated when Murdoch beat him to buy the News of the World. He was frustrated when Murdoch beat him to buy The Sun. There were now two outsiders, determined to become moguls in Britain. And Murdoch kept beating Maxwell. Now, Murdoch owned two seriously influential papers. He had the ability to sway elections and change government policy. He recognized that Murdoch had access to political power and that the political power was helpful in business. These losses stung even more for Maxwell because he knew his political power was dwindling. In 1970, he lost his seat in parliament. His business reputation was in tatters. His financial inconsistencies were exposed. It looked like his sheer arrogance surpassed his abilities. For the next decade, Maxwell watched furiously as Murdoch's empire grew while he did the best he could to expand Pergamon Press's activity in Eastern Europe. Then, the Daily Mirror came up for sale in 1984. It seemed that the stars had finally aligned. 
Robert Maxwell got his chance to become a real media mogul. And he was so delighted when he got the mirror because here was an opportunity to put his picture in the paper, to get his point of view across. He suddenly, as always happens to a new newspaper owner, the doors of Downing Street are open to you and uh, you can walk in and say what you like. You could feel that you were uh, king of the walk. Suddenly he was on par with Murdoch, his nemesis. Coming up, Maxwell shows the public just how low he'd go to win an argument. I mean, Maxwell cried in the dock at one point. He wept. In buying the mirror, Maxwell had acquired something else. Influence. And he loved to show it off. As one of the most powerful men in British media, Maxwell would welcome high-powered visitors from around the world. I remember particularly the arrival in the office of Nelson Mandela and his wife, Winnie. Roy was thrilled to be invited up to Maxwell's suite to meet the Mandelas. He put his arm around, clumsily around Nelson Mandela to draw him deeper into the room and said, Now, Mr. Mandela, let me give you some advice on how to negotiate. This is a man who'd negotiated from jail his freedom and the freedom of his people. And here was Maxwell telling him how to negotiate. But this was absolutely typical. The belief, the self-belief that he was the most important. He once um, uh, told a ballerina how to do it. He went, leapt up on stage during rehearsals to show her what she should be doing. One day, Roy was flying in the helicopter with him. He tried to take over the controls of the helicopter, causing Betty, his wife, and me immense panic, thinking we were about to die, with Betty screaming at him. And the pilot, for the only time probably in his life, the pilot absolutely knocking his arm away. So there's a man who thought he was a helicopter pilot, thought he was a ballerina, and thought he could negotiate better than Nelson Mandela. I mean, it doesn't get more extraordinary than that. By now, Maxwell's extraordinary life story was well known to the British public. People called him Captain Bob or the Bouncing Chuck, or they talked about the Max Factor. He was seen as a maverick, coming from nowhere to make it to the top. But his ego was also becoming a talking point. Beyond the pages of his own publications, he was the subject of increasing ridicule in the British press. The Daily Mirror became known as the Daily Maxwell because quite often there was nothing else in it except himself. Part of the function of his newspapers was to carry enormous pictures of him, usually involved in philanthropic enterprises or distributing charity to the poor. This is Ian Hislop, the editor of Private Eye. It's a satirical British magazine that revels in ridiculing the British establishment while holding the government to account. Think of it as a cross between The Onion and The Daily Show. When it came to Maxwell, Private Eye loved to poke fun at this outsider who was desperate for acceptance from a hostile British society. Robert Maxwell was always known as Captain Bob because he'd, he'd left the army as a captain. But actually, it was so that we could run a pirate strip about <laughs> this rather unscrupulous man who sailed the high seas looting <laughs> any enterprises that came his way and making his opponents walk the plank. Maxwell didn't see the funny side of his Captain Bob persona. Being Britain, the one thing you are meant to do is display a sense of humor. Particularly in public life, if someone is rude about you, you're meant to go, ha, oh, that's very funny. Isn't it marvelous? And he wouldn't do that. He was just incredibly cross. 
And when someone's that thin-skinned, it just becomes funnier to keep doing the joke. Maxwell despised Private Eye. He repeatedly called for its closure. He was too vain to see himself as a subject for satire. He saw himself as an underdog. Look at me, you know, I've come from nothing. Um, This is what I've achieved. And I've done that because I have not accepted the fait accompli. I've not, I am a thrusting, go-ahead, prosperous person. And you should invest in me. Maxwell was gaining a reputation for silencing his critics. If he was unhappy with a story, he would call his lawyers. He sued newspapers, biographers, the staff of BBC TV shows. The list goes on. But a battle with private eye ended up being the bloodiest. In 1986, Ian Hislop found himself in the high courts of justice, staring into the eyes of Robert Maxwell. He looked a bit like Boris Karloff. You know, that terrifying actor from the old Frankenstein movies. He had very, very dark black eyebrows, which um, were black long after, and they were probably naturally black, and sort of jet black hair. And he had a very wide face, and he was a very big man. I mean, very threatening. I remember him looking at, over at me thinking, I wouldn't like to have met you in the woods if I was a partisan. <laughs> The reason they were in court was because of a story Private Eye printed the year before concerning Maxwell's relationship with the Labour Party. Private Eye received a tip that Captain Bob was trying to become Lord Maxwell by bribing his way into the House of Lords. Maxwell had got very, very close um, to the party and, as ever, um, we were questioning whether media moguls should have this much say over British political life. The House of Lords is the second chamber in British government. Members of Parliament sit like Congress, and the Lords like the Senate. Some might say there's no higher honor in British society. The cash for peerages scandal, as it became known, outraged Private Eye's readers. It alleged that Maxwell had paid for the Labour leader, Neil Kinnock, to visit East Africa. It claimed that in return for this, Maxwell hoped that Kinnock would nominate him for a lordship. A you scratch my back and I scratch yours arrangement. Neil Kinnock has always denied this. Maxwell was so angry at Private Eye, he decided to sue them over a cartoon. We had a very beautifully drawn cartoon of Neil Kinnock as, as this little loyal dog listening to his master's voice, which was Maxwell booming out, telling him what to do. That was quite funny at the time. It wasn't so funny in court, especially when it was time for Maxwell to testify. His usual threatening tone suddenly shifted. And then the testimony took an unexpected turn. I mean, Maxwell cried in the dock at one point. He wept. He brought out an article he'd read in Private Eye. Not about him and nothing to do with the trial, which was about, we do these things about who looks like who. And it was about the Duke of Edinburgh looking like a senior Nazi. And it was nothing to do with Maxwell, and and certainly nothing to do with Maxwell and the Holocaust. Maxwell read the article aloud as tears streamed down his face. He banged his hands on the witness box and said, my family was destroyed, referring to the Holocaust. The judge had to give him time to compose himself. The headline in the mirror the next day read, Maxwell weeps over family massacre. Ian couldn't believe what was happening. Maxwell was a bully, not the victim. 
And I was sitting there thinking, God, he's crying. The jury, the jury's going to like this. They're going to hate us. Ian's colleague nudged him. He'd written a note on a piece of paper which said, Takes out onion. (laughs) Suggesting that Maxwell had concealed an onion about his person in order to bring it out and make himself cry. So I just started laughing, which again, I could see the judge look at me thinking, how callous is that person that he's just laughing as Maxwell weeps? It was no surprise when Private Eye lost the case. Not only had they failed to stand up their story, but Maxwell had portrayed them as anti-Semitic. It was a disaster. Maybe there was another, more emotional side to Robert Maxwell. Or perhaps not. And we later found out he'd boasted to someone afterwards that um, that was the finest acting that could be done and that you could forget drama school. He didn't need it. Private Eye was ordered to pay $88,000 in damages and costs of 400000 Bankruptcy loomed. Yeah, I thought he would finish us off. And I thought it would be my fault and that I would be the person who'd, who'd managed to sort of mess up this magazine that had been entrusted to me. It wasn't just the enormous legal costs that threatened to sink Private Eye. Maxwell's ego was so wounded that he couldn't resist dealing another blow. He convinced W.H. Smith, one of the biggest newsstands in the country, to remove Private Eye from its stands. If the half a million in damages didn't obliterate Ian's career, this certainly would. We weren't being sold. So we were pretty depressed and thinking, well, we've, we've sort of more or less blown it. You know, we, we've lost this. When the result was announced in court, Maxwell celebrated his victory by calling Private Eye peddlers of lies and filth. When he was asked what he would do with the damages, he said, the money might go to AIDS research. After all, it came from an infected organ and will go to help cure another. And Maxwell wasn't done there. To add insult to injury, he had one more plan up his sleeve. He was going to print his own version of Private Eye. Called not Private Eye. That's right. After winning in court, Maxwell tried to beat Private Eye at their own game with his own satirical magazine called Not Private Eye. Great title, right? You know, the first thing on it, he accused my predecessor of being a Nazi. He then ran a piece in this magazine saying that I was a well-known homosexual who picked up young men. He just made all this stuff up. But Ian's colleague, Peter Cook, came up with an amazing plan. Um, And he said, whoever's producing this, I bet they're they're hating doing it. I bet they've been told to do it by Captain Bob and they're sitting there um, and they're really bored. So they sent a crate of whiskey to the headquarters of the Daily Mirror. And he put on it to the team producing Not Private Eye. And we waited for a couple of hours. And then Peter said, right, they'll be totally drunk. Because, you know, journalists in England, it's it's not difficult to guess um, how things are going to go. And we then um, launched a raid on the Mirror Building. They took a taxi to the newspaper headquarters, where they somehow convinced security to let them pass the barrier. And we went up to the executive suite, and there were um, the journalists and others completely legless. As predicted, five of them just sort of lying around, and there was the dummy of the magazine. The page plans for Not Private Eye laid out for all to see. So I took the dummy and put it in my bag. I just stole it. And I said to Peter, I think we should go now. This is brilliant. He said, oh, no, we haven't had nearly enough fun. 
So then they ordered champagne to toast their entry into Maxwell's office. So that was quite funny. And then we got some catering in. And then Peter wrote, hello, Captain Bob, on the windows in crayon. And then he said, I know, um, let's ring Robert Maxwell, because he was in New York. And I said, is that absolutely necessary, Peter? So Peter rang Robert Maxwell in New York um, through the mirror switchboard and said, hello, Captain Bob, guess where we are? Now, at this point, mirror security were finally alerted. But Ian had stolen the plans for not private eye, and they took them to the newsstand that stopped selling their magazine. You can't sell this and refuse to sell us. And we did a deal with him that he would sell both. So we got back on the stands um, via this amazing raid by Peter. So um, in the end, um, Captain Bob did us a huge favor. After the not-private-eye debacle, you know, the lampoon of a lampoon, Maxwell had lost any sympathy he might have won from the public. He had exposed himself as a bully. Not only had he shown that he couldn't laugh at himself, but he looked like a hypocrite, someone purely motivated by ego. But Maxwell didn't care. He had grown his media empire from nothing to be second only to Rupert Murdoch. And that, in turn, gave him the political clout he never had as a member of parliament. As an underdog, he had beaten off competition and enemies only to consolidate his power. He had failed upwards, and now he was looking beyond the UK. There's one last story that Roy Greenslade still loves to tell at parties from his time at the Mirror. It's about one of Maxwell's crazy editorial interventions. By now, they were taking stranger and stranger turns, but this one was something else. I remember once when he rang and said to me, What is your splash tomorrow? And I said, well, uh, Russian soldiers have gone into uh, Lithuania. They appear to be very unhappy about Lithuanian freedom. And it almost could amount, if you think about it, to a reconquest. You are talking complete nonsense. I said, uh, uh, why? He said, do you think that Mr. Gorbachev would invade anywhere without calling me first? His ego was out of control. Or was it all ego? In hindsight, could there have actually been some truth to it? Did Maxwell have more influence over foreign leaders than a normal media baron? Next time, was Robert Maxwell a spy? Mr. Gorbachev asked him for some money, which he gave, but it was Israeli money. He gave it to Mr. Gorbachev without permission of the Israelis, and the Israelis demanded it back. Power of the Maxwells is written and presented by me, Tara Palmieri. Producers are Paul Smith and Grant Irving. Story editor is Dasha Lisitsina. Our executive producer is Tom Koenig. Original music by Nolan Schneider. Engineering and scoring by Spoke Media and NPAL Audio. Our visual designers are Emma Lansdowne and Alex Elder. Special thanks to Ella McLeod, Joe Sykes, Russell Finch, Peggy Sutton, Steve Ackerman, and Mark Rivers. Mm-hmm.